Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be continuing my look at the uh, Library of America Civil War Writing Anthology, which is four volumes long altogether. And we are currently in um, looking at documents from March of 1862 till, I think it's till May 1862. Yeah, I think uh just march and april mostly um a few documents from may the real center of these documents is um i guess there's like three things um one is uh kind of the movement towards emancipation so we make a such a, a big deal of the emancipation proclamation and obviously for good reasons we do this but the republicans and lincoln were moving towards emancipation from the beginning in various ways uh baby steps from some people's point of view like frederick Douglass's point of view at the time but you know as some historians um james oakes for instance in his new book called uh, freedom national has argued that you know there this has been a this, this was republican policy from the beginning and it was just done gradually and so where we see this is it really in two issues one is the, the push for compensated emancipation in the border states and then ultimately some, a form of emancipated uh, compensated emancipation in the district of columbia so that's kind of one issue and then we have uh the seizure of new orleans uh and the battle of shiloh two uh, major union victories in the western uh theater in the mississippi theater where of course uh those victories in many ways were more important than the uh, uh, fate of of the Union or Confederate Army in Virginia, where it was going back and forth and there was offenses on both sides in 1862, but not much, no, not many major strategic victories, right, uh, in, in those years. But in the West, you had a lot going on. And this is kind of a nice contrast, actually, if you look at the two theaters, because uh, Lincoln was really frustrated with McClellan sitting on his hands with this uh, Army of the Potomac, which was built up and well-trained and in many ways ready to go. But he was kind of, he, it took him till summer to get his so-called grand campaign going. So those two battles are also, uh, so two or three things, depending on how you count. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about McClellan and Lincoln's frustration with it, but largely our focus is going to be on, on the, the things I just mentioned. So, um, and if you're just joining us, this uh, this read-through of these documents is, is well, if, you know, it's a read-through of an anthology of documents. It's a collection of documents by different points of from different points of view different people famous not so famous uh from north from south from pol pol politicians from generals from observers men women black white so it's a really nice anthology i'm enjoying reading it and i think it would be a nice companion to like a a course on the civil war like a college level course on the civil war um i don't know maybe students these days wouldn't read all four volumes but um you know i think I think a, a good teacher with good students could pull together such a course, and I think uh, they would learn a lot from it. It would just be great for research papers, too, because all the sources would be right there for you, at least to get started on a good research project. Um, I've had a lot of fun reading through these documents, even though it's been taking me a while to um, to get through them, but, um, but it's okay. I'm kind of savoring them, I suppose, um, and, and learning learning a few things myself. So anyways, uh, we're just, just going to go through document. I might, document, I may skip one or two if I feel like it, but usually I've been looking, at least mentioning all of the ones in this collection. So the first document we have is 
from March 1862. It is Lincoln's uh, message to Congress on compensated emancipation. Um, there's also a letter here to James uh, McDougall um, on this. Uh, now, again, you kind of see Lincoln here pushing for emancipation. Um, and of course, compensated emancipation was not what the abolitionists want, but that this may have been a way of him distancing himself from them a little bit. And uh, again, trying to keep the border states as happy as possible when there was still concern about the politics of, of slavery in those states. Maybe not so much in Maryland and Delaware, but particularly in the Western states, it was a bigger issue. Um, so a couple things in this message is one is the you know the, the the subtle hint of of maybe some kind of colonization taking place which again lincoln i don't know how serious he was about this or how you know as a policy matter you know or is it more politics that's i guess my question here i my guess is it is political just to keep more racist voices of course most of the north was was racist as was the south so even if they were anti-slavery they were not racial egalitarians for the most part so talking about some kind of let not sudden emancipation and talking about maybe colonization was something um in his concern also uh the issue of states rights you know not just unilaterally ending slavery but again kind of kind of creating a federal program to phase out slavery is, is what the proposal is here and basically the way it works is you pay three hundred dollars per slave that is freed in those states um so that's the first thing so it's march 6 he gives this proposal to congress now the letter to james mcdougall is a week later more or less and the case he makes here is basically it's cheaper to do this if this is a this is going to make the war easier to win um to deal with this the issue of slavery in the border states. It'll just make the war quicker and easier to manage by taking that issue off the table. Um, and eventually that's going to be a decision in the Emancipation Proclamation itself. Um, but he says here, like, there's not that many slaves in the border states uh, compared to the cost of fighting the war. So he says, like, if you were to free all the slaves in Delaware, only four, um, let me see here. Oh, sorry. He, so he says uh, in 1860, there was 1,800 slaves in um, Delaware. And I, oh, I, I, did I say 300? I guess it was 400 is what the offer was. Um, so he says if for $400 each, it would cost $700,000. The one day's cost of the war is, is $2 million. So if freeing the slaves in Delaware would end the war one day earlier, it'd be worth it for the government. And then he goes through and he actually does the math on all the slaves in the four border states and the District of Columbia, which amounts to 400,000. And it's only amounts to 87 days of the war. So if it lowers the duration of the war by two months, more or less, three months, he's saying it would be worth it to do it. So that's his, his case. Very practical, very, very much like we come to expect from, from Lincoln. So next we have a document that, that some people might dig. Uh, uh, Catsby app Roger Jones. So this is a from a memoir, I think. 
when was the date? Yeah, it's 1883, written for the Southern Historical Society papers. So the, this is, uh, I haven't looked at too many of these. I looked at the, like the Wisconsin historical papers. So I, I think a lot of state historical societies in the later 19th century were publishing these kinds of papers uh, and putting them together. Um, this is, you know, collecting memoirs and stuff like that. Um, this, this particular one is about uh, this guy's service on the Virginia. Um, so you might know this as the USS Merrimack. Of course, it was uh, um, scuttled by the Union uh, during secession, and then it got kind of revamped, uh, re refurbished, and it became the CSS Virginia. But you know, when you learn about this in school, it's usually the Monitor Merrimack battle is the focus. It's you know the the first ironclads, the battle of the first ironclads. It's so it's it's kind of a interesting moment in history. It's not too significant for the war. So this document's another one of those memoirs. We've seen quite a lot of these memoirs of a battle. Some soldier who who lives into the 1880s, 1890s writes down their story, tries to maybe sell a sell this narrative or or what just for posterity or for whatever reason. And there are various interests. I guess if you're a, a naval warfare buff, you might. You might dig this this account. It is a first-person account from someone who served on the Virginia. So I guess that's that's its value to you. Um, it was wasn't it like a really indecisive battle? Like they just kind of lob cannons at each other, and then like because they're ironclad, they didn't do too much damage to the other. Um, anyways, that's the sense we get here. The next document, though, much more interesting. Um, it's from March 1862, and it's an article by Nathaniel Hawthorne um, called Chiefly About War Matters. It's actually a selection from that longer article. And um, I guess Hawthorne, Hawthorne was in Washington, and he met Lincoln. He met McClellan. Uh, he heard about the Monitor Merrimack battle. Um, so he's he's kind of witness to to some of these events at, at the time from in Washington. Now, what's most notorious about this particular document seems to be that Hawthorne had, um, I wouldn't say unflattering depictions of of Lincoln. Uh, I think they're realistic and honest depictions of Lincoln. I think Hawthorne does have sufficient respect for for Lincoln and his position and all that, but. You know, we get a, like a real human look at Lincoln, which is maybe missing from some other, um, you know, witnesses and people who, who write about their encounters with Lincoln. Um, and, and that originally was like edited out or parts of that were edited out in the original publication. But here we have the, the original text, I, I suppose. And um, I mean, I think it's great. I think the section where he describes his meeting with Lincoln over a couple pages is is. Quite wonderful. President Lincoln is the essential representative of all Yankees and the veritable specimen physically of what the world seems determined to regard as their characteristic qualities. It is the strangest and yet the fittingest, fittest thing in the jumble of human vicissitudes that he, out of all so many millions, unlooked for, unselected by any intelligible process, could be based upon his general qualities unknown to those who chose him and unsuspected by what endowments may adapt him for his tremendous responsibility. End quote. I mean, that's kind of a pretty contemporary... Uh, I mean, f uh, a modern reading of Lincoln, right? That, you know, he was kind of the right man at the right time. And he was someone whose times made him to a certain degree, but also the luck of having this person as president at the time when, at the, you know, before that he was not the most highly supported Republican. He was kind of the compromise candidate between different factions in the Republican Party. 
Um, but his physical descriptions, I think, is what was more notorious about this article, uh, where he talks about it was kind of, uh, you know, things like his natural dignity, his kind of, uh, uh, his, is it folk, folk, folky ways or a bit of awkwardness? Uh, let me try to read some of it. Uh, but the president's Yankee aptness and not to be caughtness stood him in good stead, and he jerked or wriggled himself out of the dilemma with an uncouth dexterity that was entirely in character, although without the gesture, gestalations of eye and mouth. I doubt whether his words would be worth recording, even if I could remember them. The gist of the reply was that he accepted the whip as an emblem of peace, not punishment, and his, when the greatest fair is over, we retired out of the presence in high good humor, only regretting that we could not have seen the president sit down and fold his legs, end quote. So he was kind of like wanting to see that because I guess of his his height or just the way he carried himself. Um, but anyways, the editor found these depictions a little um, too, uh, too honest, I suppose, in their, in their description of, of Lincoln. Um, but we get to read them now, which is, which is great. Um, he sees other things. There was apparently this duel um, in Alexandria between a Colonel Ellsworth and a guy named Jackson, a pro-Confederate and a pro-Union force that, that they killed each other in some kind of duel in a bar. He witnesses that. Um, he talks about the Monitor Merrimack battle. He uh, goes on quite a lot about um, um, slavery and the contradiction of slavery in the United States. Uh, quote, there is a historical circumstance known to few that connects the children of the Puritans with these Africans of Virginia in a very singular way. They are brethren as being lineal descendants from the Mayflower, the faded womb of which, in her first voyage, set forth a brood of her pilgrims upon the Plymouth Rock, and in a subsequent one spawned slaves upon the southern soil. A monstrous birth, but with which we have an instinctive sense of kindred. End quote. So saying slavery was at the birth of America, right? So Nathaniel Hawthorne here delving into critical race theory. Um, so I guess we should... Uh, not allow this to be read in school. Uh, what else do we have here? Uh, his, his depictions of, of McClellan and especially his depiction of I think McClellan's kind of, um, you know, some of the image we have of McClellan as like the little Napoleon of someone who's kind of positioned himself above others, very sophisticated, more European style gentleman, general, um, contrast with Lincoln in a way. Um, so he talks about that and he talks about the monitor Merrimack battle at the end. So uh, I think this is a document maybe worth looking up the original and reading the whole thing because he definitely um, uh, has a lot to say. I don't know if the Library of America published Hawthorne's nonfiction writing. I don't think so. I think the two volumes are his novels and the second one is his stories. This might be in the story collection because that is really thick and I haven't gone through it systematically. Um, but there it is. Speaking of George McClellan, that's the next, next document we have, uh, which is it's actually two documents uh, next to each other about the opening of the Grand Campaign. This was going to be the campaign that the goal was to seize Richmond, although he sat on his hands and delayed the start of this campaign officially for, well, I guess this was the official opening of the campaign, but it actually didn't start going in, in, in fact for, for another month or so, or maybe a couple months. It took, take, took a while. 
Um, but he's he official. Op- this is an official opening of that campaign in his address to the soldiers. Um, and basically, it's saying, "Oh, you've been working really hard, and now we're ready to go, 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 win this war." Um, and attached to that, we have this letter to uh, a man named uh, Samuel Barlow, uh, where he basically talks about his lack of friendship, his feeling of isolation, his which is, I think, something that Hawthorne was actually picking up on a little bit. Um, and uh, we might accuse him of, be, of some of that being kind of earned uh, isolation, but also a feeling that the president is his strongest friend. And I wonder if that was a harmful attitude for the war effort. Because he felt the president had his back, he was less, I guess, willing to take seriously some of the president's eagerness for him to advance the, the war to the Confederates. But uh, however we want to interpret it, I think this, this, this is just a little note where it gives us a sense of, on the one hand, his optimism for the state of the army at the time, but also his, his personal feeling, his dealing with the media and the attacks on that and the abolitionists and those who are, who are being much harder on him. All right. Uh, next, we have Charles Francis Adams uh, to his son, Charles Francis Adams Jr., not Henry Adams. Henry Adams is with him in London. Uh, this is Charles Francis Adams is in the military at the time. Um, and this April 4th letter uh, talks about the Merrimack Monitor battle. Uh, he says, the battle between the Merrimack and our vessels has been the main talk in the town ever since the news came in Parliament, in the clubs, in the city, among the military and naval people. The impression is that it dates the commencement of a new era in warfare and that Great Britain must consent to begin over again, end quote. And I think that might be, that's how it's taught, right? We often, it's often taught as the beginning of a new age in warfare, uh, kind of equivalent to the introduction of tanks in World War I or something. Um, and then what it means for Britain's naval power, right? If there is, see, I'm, I'm not an expert on naval power and, and, you know, the geopolitics of, of navies. But my understanding is that, you know, the rapid development of naval technology over the 20th century made it harder to maintain supremacy, right? Like British, the British were able to maintain naval supremacy for over a century um, with wood sailing ships. But with the ironclads, this would allow, if one ironclad could sink a dozen wood ships, then it doesn't matter how many you have, right? So whoever could outproduce Britain at that point with the new ships could have naval dominance. This was, of course, Germany's plan with the dreadnought race, right? Even though they could never beat the British in tonnage, if they could have an equal number or more dreadnoughts, their hope was that they could outtake um, um, Britain. I talked about this a little bit in the, when I did that series on Barbara Tuckman. And so we have it here. So the British were aware of that. And I, I think it's, you know what, one thing I've been enjoying about these is things I, I kind of thought was just kind of historical consensus that came after the fact was being figured out at the time, like the Stonewall Jackson. I always thought that must have been months later that he got that name. But actually, it was like almost immediately after the Battle of Bull Run, the name Stonewall Jackson appeared uh, in, you know, I think it was it. It was some Southern diarist. Uh, was it that? that chestnut woman but here also this idea of the monitor battle being a revolutionary moment in naval history um you know that would change everything and force britain to kind of rethink its 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 navy 
seems to be some truth to that. Now, more importantly, I guess, in this document is uh, from the perspective of the war and the fates of the United States in that war is Adams's feelings that the diplomatic crisis that we saw earlier is over and that things are calming down. And maybe that window for some conflict between the United States and Britain leading to maybe uh, recognizing Britain recognizing the Confederacy closes and relations being good. And I think that's obviously going to be seen. That's one, obviously one of the great achievements of Charles Francis Adams's um, period as ambassador to, to London. So next we have a, a letter uh, from Emily Dickinson to uh, Louis and Francois Narquois. I don't quite sure the relationship, but what this is, um, this is about death. This is a, a pretty interesting document about just the experience of death, which of course thousands and thousands of Americans experienced, you know, in some way, most Americans experienced death in some way during the civil war, losing family members, losing children, losing husbands, uh, or whatever. Um, and it's, you know, it's such a, it was such a common experience. You know, there's a whole book about it called This Republic of Suffering, which is all about death in the Civil War. And this is um, a document talking about someone's death and the experience and, and how someone experienced that. Um, so there's that. Um, the next document we have is uh, Frederick Douglass. And I think we've read enough of his documents. This is actually a speech in this case, uh, March 25th, 1862. Um, and it's a speech uh, basically about how to end the war and what should be done um, to end the war. And it's not, it's, you know, we know enough about Douglas by this point uh, to, to know that his conclusion is arm slaves and free slaves. Uh, free them, free slaves and arm the freedmen. That's the way to end the war. Um, and he kind of makes a more systematic argument about about why that should be done. Um, but he says some other interesting things here too. Um, for instance, he's a little bit critical of McClellan and his over fear of the Southern armies, I suppose. Um, and he kind of has some suspect about his commitment to the to the cause, such as the will. Um, but I think what's for me, what's most interesting about this document is he starts to think about reconstruction in a way. And he says, uh, eventually rebel power will be broken in the United States. Eventually the seceded states will have to be brought back into the constitution. And we already, we kind of know Douglas's feelings about the constitution, right? He gave that speech. What is the 4th of July to me? So he's actually of, he's got complex views about this. And like many other abolitionists, he's not married to the constitution. And of course the constitution would have to be changed. Uh, during Reconstruction. Um, I don't think he's, he doesn't really say that here, but instead he's talking about really how do we transform a land of traitors into, you know, and remake them and bring them back into the country. And he's not optimistic about it. He says, basically, Southerners are to a man, at least among whites, traitors and hate the North, hate the Union. And it's an all-pervasive feeling among them. And so how do you reconstruct such a population? And he's able to bring this back around to the slavery issue. He says the real root of bitterness, that which has generated this intense Southern hatred towards the North is slavery. Here is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Once I felt it necessary to argue this point, the time for such argument has passed. 
Slavery stands confessed as the grand cause of the war. It has drilled every rebel soldier, loaded, primed, aimed, and fired every rebel cannon since the war began. No other interest, commercial, manufacturing, or political, could have wrought such a social earthquake upon us. It is within itself that which begets a character in all around it's favorable to its own continuance. It makes slaves of the Negroes, vassals of the poor whites, and tyrants of the masters. And so it's this system that breeds this hatred of the North and this animosity and this willingness to fight um, and all the violence and horror of the war is rooted in slavery. So the question is, what should be done with slavery? It's got to go, right? That's the only way to move beyond this point. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, he was, you know, there are, it's not as unoptimistic. You can't paint as optimistic a picture in hindsight because we do know what happened to Reconstruction. We do know what happened to race relations after after the war but nonetheless uh, i think he's right that, that abolition helped end the war um abolish slavery concludes and you put an end to sectional regionalism or to, to end to sectional uh, religion and morals establish free speech and liberty of conscience i mean basically he's saying that's that's what divides the north and the south is ultimately slavery he's he's not he thinks that's the big thing dividing them. So that was what will bring the country together. Um, abolish slavery and rational law-abiding liberty will fill the whole land with peace, joy, and permanent safety now and forever. That, maybe not so much. But as uh, in terms of its short-term um, um, prophecy, I think it's right. So the next document we have is Abraham Lincoln's letter to George B. McClellan, in which he argues that uh, George McClellan should get off his butt and do something. This is a pretty famous letter, um, April 9th, 1862. This is a month after he's more or less said this grand campaign is opening and he still hasn't really done anything with his army. And Lincoln is still not saying you have to do this. Of course, we already saw his general order one was more or less ignored, um, but he's saying you got to do something, you, you know, and maybe he's thinking pol political here because, you know, but, you know, now it certainly is, is somewhat on Lincoln's mind. But he's thinking, too, if we're going to end this war, it's going to have to be through. We're going to have to s take back these states and that's going to require using the army that we built up. And it's wasteful and to to just not use it. We've already said two million dollars a day to to uh, maintain this army. So the next group of documents I'm going to take as a as a whole. Um, I think there's two or three of them. I thought there'd be more on Shiloh actually. If you look at the this collection, actually comes with a book of like a pamphlet or like an envelope full of maps. And nor, while normally the inside cover, um, what's that called? But uh, the, the for that first page, the the first fold, I forget what that's called. Um, that's usually like a the same. Uh, um, kind of design on all Library of America books, just different colors. But here there's maps and, and there'd be maps of like where the battles are in the, in the, like a map of the United States with sites of battle sites that are mentioned in the book. And then in the back you have, um, in this particular volume, you have a close up of Virginia, of Northern Virginia for the peninsula campaign. And then you have uh, the Antietam battlefield. And you also have in one of the inside folds, the Shiloh battlefield. So, I would have thought from this that Shiloh would be a bigger chunk of this book, but actually we only get a handful of documents. One from Grant, one from a Confederate soldier, and one from Sherman. So we got two officers and one soldiers 
eyewitness accounts of the war. Now, the Grant one, it's a series of letters. One to like his wife, Julia. One to um, his commander in Pittsburgh, Tennessee. Uh, that would have been uh, Buell, I think. Um, another to Captain McLean. And it's over a course of time. So it starts like when the battle is still being fought. And then after the battle to Julia. And then later on. And you see like the fog of war here. We often think of these generals as having control like in a Napoleonic sense, controlling the battlefield. Like, a, and I'm becoming less certain that's true. When, I mean, that these battles seem so chaotic when you read these eyewitness accounts, even from officers. It seems often that once the fighting starts, they're not really sure what's going on. And that's not really where genius in command comes from, is moving soldiers and doing this maneuver or that maneuver. It seems much more about the planning, the logistics, the overall strategy, you know, the use of troops, you know, the offensive or defensive or those kinds of decisions. And we see like Grant didn't seem to really know what he didn't know how many people died, you know, after the battle. He really couldn't say much. He said that we won. He, he knew, you know, the Union Army won this battle. But beyond that, he didn't seem to know that much. Um, so it's just a lot of confusion here. Uh, it's the same in, the, in Sherman's because Sherman was at this battle, too. He's writing to his wife. And there's a couple of things in this document where he's um, just talks about the experience of the battle, but he also warns her saying, you know, things are going to be rough and you may have to kind of tighten your belt and, and not have money necessarily. You know, things aren't really secure on that level and maybe preparing her for his possible death. I think he was wounded in this battle or at least shot at or I think marginally wounded in this battle. Um, then we have a George W. Dawson to his wife. He was a Confederate soldier, um, and he writes about his experience and some of the, the nastiest fighting in this very nasty battle. I think Shiloh was the biggest up, uh, in American history up to this point. And then finally, we have Melville's poem, Shiloh. This was maybe written after uh, the war. I th I'm not sure when he wrote all these. The date he gets for this is April 1862, but that's the date of the battle, not the date of, of the composition of this poem. I think these were written in 65, um, but it's just a short poem about this, this battle. Not too special, but it's significant that it's by Melville, um, for me anyways. All right, so that's, that's the Battle of Shiloh. There's documents about that if you're interested in that battle, but you're not going to get a big sense of of what was going on in the battle, right? The maneuvers or the the fighting here and there. I'm sure for that you'd have to go much more into many more sources and maybe read some secondary sources. But it's it's always good to hear from Grant and, and Sherman, I think. So the next thing we have is the Confederate Conscription Act, um, which is just the reprinting of the law itself. Um, and it's the first conscription act in U.S. history, of course. Um, you know, again, a... This idea of of states' rights lead, you know, the states' rights ideas of the Confederacy leading to some kind of libertarian utopia, it's hogwash. Uh, state making was as strong in the South, if not stronger, than in the North. Um, and clearly, you see it in the fact that they drafted, they forced people to fight before other people did, and they did so in a very unequal way. Uh, you know, and of course, the North had it; you could buy replacements uh, by paying enough money. In the South, the way this was framed was much more crassly, I think. And that was if you had 20 or more slaves, you were 
you didn't have to you didn't have to be drafted the justification was you needed to be there to run the plantations of course and many big slaveholders did fight um but the idea of a of a rich man's war and poor man's fight is was strong in the north but i think even stronger in the in the south because of the nature of the conscription act um you know clearly in a war to defend slavery it was the slaveholders who got to sit out if they wanted so that law is here um then we have a uh, then we have Lincoln's message to Congress about abolishing slavery in the District of Columbia. Uh, this was done by Congress, and this is uh, I think this was like his signing statement, if you will, um, to this to this bill, uh, kind of a message to Congress signing it. Um, and in June, he would sign another bill abolishing slavery in the territories. So this, is, of course, was one of the causes of the Civil War was the question of slavery in the territories. And Lincoln would be able to do that. So again, this idea of trickling in step by step emancipation um, is uh, pretty clear from these documents. In this case, of course, uh, it was compensated. Here it was $300 per slave and $100,000 appropriated, which doesn't seem like a lot of money. Uh, for voluntary colonization of freed slaves outside the United States. I don't know. I, I, I get I get the sense the colonization stuff is such a... It's so, it's just political cover. I don't think Lincoln at this point really believes colonization is possible. It's just there were those racist voices that wanted to hear that. that. And so you, you budget a little bit of money and say, this is a fund for, con for colonization, knowing few, if any, are going to take advantage of that. Um, so then we got a couple documents dealing with uh, the seizure of New Orleans. One is kind of fun. It's John Russell Bartlett's uh, running the gauntlet in Louisiana, getting past these forts. And just, you know, so much of the war in the West seems to be about controlling the river and getting access to it. And part of that was seizing forts like Fort Donaldston, as we talked about in the last episode. But sometimes it was just, you know, bypassing these forts and getting beyond them, you know, uh, and that was the case with this this ship and this this account, um, not totally unscathed, but they are, they are able to, to kind of maneuver their way past these 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 forts along the Mississippi and get their way to New Orleans. And of course, uh, New Orleans would fall, which would be the first, I guess, the first major city of the South to to be in Union hands, and the first place with a really really large black population, a place where. Uh, Reconstruction would be worked out quite early on, or the the ideas about what reconstruction would mean would be worked out there. We've already talked about the the islands off the coast of like the Carolinas, but certainly in New Orleans. Uh, and New Orleans was a very interesting place in terms of race, with um, a little more complex concept of race because of its very very different history in the colonial period, um, being a French colony, having a large free black population. Um, and having skin color being a bigger factor uh, in status among African-Americans there. So it's a more interesting place, but it's also where Butler is going to be at really ground zero of, of what, you know, the, working out what Reconstruction will be. And then I think that's more or less it. I don't have much, much more to say about these documents. We do have one more, uh, Charles S. Rainwright's diary about the Battle of Williamsburg, which is just kind of a setup battle for the Peninsular Campaign. Um, and that's where we're going to go next episode. So the next episode will, will be about that campaign mostly, um, which was the first, the first major campaign in the East 
by the Union Army. And of course, it was a failure. And it leads to the rise of Robert E. Lee and, um, as, as head of the Army of Northern Virginia. And it's going to be the first of a series of pretty devastating Union losses in that theater. But culminating, of course, in the Battle of Antietam, which um, is really, really important historically um, because of its connection to the Emancipation Proclamation. So um, I guess that's it for for this set of, of documents. So as a, again, we got the, the, the baby steps towards emancipation, the Battle of Shiloh, seizure of New Orleans, Confederate conscription. Uh, you know, and that's, I guess that's the main thing. And then McClellan's sitting in his hands. I guess those are the things going on in this set of documents. Um, but um, we'll see where the next set take us, takes us. But it's, I think the focus is going to be mostly on the peninsula, uh, the Virginia Peninsula campaign of, of 1862. So um, as always, uh, thanks for listening. I will see you next time. If you have any thoughts about this document or any of these issues I bring up, please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And I will see you next time. Thanks for listening.